and welcome to this edition of Women Worth Knowing. Women Worth Knowing. And we've got just a great woman today, Mm -hmm. uh, one that both Jasmine and I love. Yes. And I think you've been really excited about telling this story. Yeah. No, definitely. Definitely. And it's kind of fun, too, because, you know, spoiler alert, it's going to tie into something Cheryl shares later on. So that's right. Oh, and I forgot. This is Cheryl Broderson. Oh, yeah. What's your name? Jasmine Allnut. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's who we are. We know who we are. We're well, not, hopefully you do. We're not really women worth knowing, but these women are. That's right. We know each other. So right, that's right, good. right. <laughs> All right. Yes. So today we're going to talk about Catherine Booth. She is a very important figure in church history, actually. And just, you know, I'll just preface by saying she was a speaker, author, and co-founder of a famous organization you guys might have heard of called... Salvation Army. The Salvation Army. Exactly. Uh, she and her husband, William, founded it. Uh, She was also a mother of eight kids. I don't know how she found time to do. Yeah, it's amazing. You read the story, you're like, where did she find time to do all she did? Oh, and also not only that, but um, she was a mother of eight children and worked extensively in the Salvation Army, but she had scoliosis. Yes. She did all this despite all the pain Mm -hmm, that she was mm -hmm. in. Plus, she had Crohn's disease. Oh, yeah. I mean, those of you who have, yeah, chronic issues like that. Or digestive issues. Right. Oh, my goodness. And this is, she did all these things but continued. (laughs) And yet people would talk about how um, her kindness, Mm -hmm. her generosity. I think most, if not all, of the kids went into ministry or missions on some level. It's actually been said, no one family ever spread the gospel farther and more effectively than the Booths. So that's quite a statement. So just getting into her background a little bit, her maiden name was Catherine Mumford. And she was born in England. Oh, she was born in 1829. I do know that. 1829, good. So she was raised in a Christian home. It's kind of sad. Out of six siblings, only she and one of her brothers uh, survived. So the rest of them all died in infancy or, you know, early childhood. In fact, you know, she said 60 years later, uh, she was talking about, you know, her siblings and stuff. And she remembered when her two-year-old sister died and what an impression that made on her way back when. So she was only like three or four herself when that happened. And so kind of the specter of death was just there early on in her life. And so her mom was a huge influence on her. She was a very principled and very black and white woman. (laughs) Very, this is right, this is wrong. She was a little overprotective. She homeschooled Catherine, wouldn't let her have friends who would corrupt her and that sort of thing. Her mom was very fearful, unfortunately. And so (laughs) that made her childhood a little... A little different. I mean, she said that she would go and like um, line up her dolls and preach to them when she was a little kid because she didn't have like a lot of playmates and things like that, which is kind of sad. But her mom was loving. She was spiritually minded. Catherine said that with her mom, heaven seemed quite near instead of being a far off unreality. So she, you know, loved and appreciated her her upbringing and all of that, even though it was, you know, maybe a little, like I said, overprotected. I can understand that if she lost six children. That might be why. That's a really good point. My mom was adopted and mm. her mother was overbearing, but it was mm. because um, her first daughter had run off and eloped. And so now she adopted this child and she was overbearing. That is a great point. And Catherine's brother ended up running off and joining the military at 16. So that's a good point. I hadn't even connected that, but there was probably a little bit of that mm-hmm. going on, a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. So Catherine had a naturally intense personality anyway. So I don't know if it really helped that she was kind of isolated. <laughs> um, her daughter told said later that living was to her a very serious thing because she felt things so deeply. So very conscientious girl. She was very orderly. Um, she was shy, but, you know, she also had a really strong sense of justice, as we're going to see, and, and 
you know, when it came to matters of principle, she could be very forthright. She loved the Bible. I had read that by the time she was 16 years old, she had read the Bible from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, mm. eight times. Oh, I'm not surprised. By the time she was 16 Crazy. years old. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was very, very committed. And she'd studied theology, mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah. She was a really smart girl. She was also very compassionate towards those mm-hmm. in need. Kind of Cheryl kind of hinted at that a little bit, animal or human. Um, <laughs> she had a strong sense of justice, like I said, and she probably inherited that from her dad. He was early on in life. He was a zealous Christian, and he actually played a big role in the local temperance movement. She was the president of the temperance movement chapter at 15 years old in her area. But she was afraid that most people wouldn't respect any articles written by a girl. Right, at that time. Because yeah. a lot of them she wrote when she was 13. And so oh, she yeah. wrote them anonymously. Let's just stop a for a second age. and talk about why temperance is so important. Mm. There, there were no rights for women. Yeah. And men would get drunk and come home and beat their wives. Yep. And so temperance was a way to keep these men who were normally kind Mm-hmm. And hardworking, mm-hmm. but when they drank, their personalities changed. And exactly. so these women looking on said, you know what? The way to save these families is just to get rid of alcohol mm-hmm. because it's addictive and these men's personalities change and they they don't want to be yeah. like this. And that's actually a really good point because sometimes when we think about the temperance movement, you think it's just a bunch of goody goodies. It had nothing to do mm-hmm. with that. You're right. It was for protection, mm-hmm. exactly, of these families. I mean, we've talked about women that had alcohol in their back, like Mary Slessor's dad right. who beat her. And, you know, I mean, it was yeah. just. Well, it's yeah. interesting how many women we've talked about so far on this program who's who became temperance leaders like mm-hmm. Harriet Tubman and Amanda Berry Smith, uh, Sojourner Truth, just to name three. Right. Um, I know um, Amy Simple McPherson, who we'll talk about later, mm-hmm. she was very, very much a part of the temperance yes. movement. As a kid, Catherine would um, confront people who mistreated animals. Like I said, she was shy, but if there was a, just, a situation where justice was demanded, <laughs> she would jump in and intervene. And then there was the story that Cheryl and I were talking about before we started here. When she was like nine years old, she saw a drunk guy getting arrested by the police, and she walked him to the station. The reason she walked him to the station is because little kids were throwing rocks at him. And they were saying these awful things, mm. and she felt sorry for him. Yes. So she stood by him. But maybe it was that that made her part of the temperance movement. You mm. know, at nine, mm-hmm. seeing this man drunk and yep. seeing how people treated him because he, he had no respect. So she— walked all the way to the police station at nine. So her mother couldn't have been too overprotective. Yeah, there was something. Yes. Yeah, Maybe she was out with her dad at that time. And yes. Her dad was a little looser. So right. maybe right. <laughs> that's a good point. Maybe her mom never found out. That's right. <laughs> Until she read her biography. So she, yeah, yeah, later. Wait a minute. So yeah, so she would do that. She would just come to the side of anyone um, in dire straits or in need who was in a desperate situation. And sometimes she wasn't the most discerning because she was young, but there was just this drive of compassion there. Uh, One of her biographers said, the Holy Spirit was fashioning her with a heart to meet the needs of the outcast, those to whom the Salvation Army ministered. Something of her compassion permeates the whole approach of the Salvationists. So, I mean, you see her fingerprints, as we're going to see, all over the Salvation Army. Now, I read after she moved to London, though, that's when she had a crisis of faith. 
Yes, she did. Exactly. When she was a teenager, because she went off to boarding school and she started studying and and all of these things. And, and she was a very avid reader. She's studying theology, philosophy, Christian doctrine. But some of these things were presenting her with ideas that kind of rocked her. But when she was 17, she really realized through that spiritual crisis that she was just a head knowledge girl and she didn't really have a relationship. It just kind of dawned on her that she needed to make it personal. And so that was when she really entered into a genuine relationship. Like how many people, it's through a crisis of faith. Mm -hmm. faith. You know, we tend to like, oh, no, they're challenging, they're questioning their faith. But I think it was George MacDonald, the the writer, who said that an honest doubt, an honest doubt will Mm -hmm. always lead you to Jesus Christ. That's so cool. I love that. And so there's nothing to be afraid of. And those Mm -hmm. who seek him, you know, the Lord said, if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek with me with all your heart. And that's what a crisis of faith mm. really does for a lot of people. It makes them seek with all their heart. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And even like in Isaiah 1, where he says, come, let us reason together. Yes. God's not afraid of that. That's right. That's, <laughs> that's right. such a great point. So Catherine does. She was an honest seeker mm-hmm. and she comes to the Lord. And so she's really born again at this point. And she goes back home from boarding school and becomes a huge support to her mom because sadly, while she'd been away at school, uh, her mom had developed some health problems and her dad had really gotten just sucked into trying to make a lot of money, make ends meet, and it kind of derailed his spiritual life. And ironically enough, this man who'd been leading the temperance movement started drinking mm. and it brought a lot of grief to the family. You know, he just started in this downward spiral. I do know later in life, he came out of it and recommitted his life to the Lord. But during this time, I mean, this was really a huge stress on the family. Catherine started to develop health issues. Like you said, the scoliosis started really to manifesting itself. Um, at this point. Um, by the time she was 23, she had improved enough to, you know, function a little bit. During this time, she's going to a Wesleyan church. And it's interesting because, like I said, remember, she's kind of reserved and shy, but when she feels like something's off, she'll speak up. And she got uh, uh, really upset because she could see there was part of a, there was a group in the Wesleyan church who wanted revival and they wanted to see God do a fresh work of his spirit. They thought, well, we're getting kind of stale and the old guard, you know, they got very defensive of this. And so Catherine and some of those other people got kicked out of the church. Kind of interesting. So she was, you know, she knew her own mind and I'm, now we're getting into this being the principled person that she was, she had decided around this time, maybe a little bit earlier when she was younger, she said, I made up my mind. The man I marry must be a sincere Christian, not a nominal one or a mere church member, but truly converted to God. So she's like, I'm I'm principled. I will leave the church on my convictions. I need to meet a man who has the same convictions. I remember uh, reading something about she was looking for a man with a passion for God. It had to be passion. And the word passion kept coming up. She yes. was a prolific journaler and would write these letters, but she was looking for a passion for God in a man. Yeah. I had a, something in here from a biographer who said that she could never have married a half-hearted man. It would not yes. have worked. Yes. He would have been yes. steamrolled by her passion, like yes. you said. So, yeah. So this is where William Booth does come into the picture. Now, he had grown up in poverty, and he had started working when he was 14 to support the family income. Uh, He got saved in a Wesleyan church. That's why I brought up the Wesleyan church, because that was their background for both of them. When he was 15, he got saved. He said, God shall have all there is of William Booth. So there's the passion. (laughs) Well, the Wesleyan will play in a little bit later, too, as far as evangelism goes. We'll get to that. But remember that word Wesleyan. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So immediately he starts street preaching. He's just fired up. He's inspired by Charles Finney, the revivalist over in America, who was kind of the father of the Second Great Awakening. 
And so William is just drawn to street people, probably because of his own background. And he kind of developed a, mod- a motto, go for souls and go for the worst. And I mean, he actually really genuinely lived that out. A lot of people, I think, can say like, oh, yes, we got to go to those who are down and out. He was absolutely committed to going for the worst, going to the darkest, most challenging places to find people that needed Jesus. And so uh, his street preaching actually got him expelled from his church, just like Catherine. How about that? So they both are kind of, you know, willing to stand on principle um, and do things differently than what was the customary way or method. And so uh, he got connected soon after this with a guy named Mr. Rabbits, which I thought was cute. And he really, for whatever reason, the Lord just gave him a heart for William. And he said, I see the hand of God on you. I want to encourage and support you financially in your evangelism. Uh, He got him instated at um, Walworth Chapel to become kind of a regular preacher. Uh, And of course, Mr. Rabbits also happened to know Catherine, who visited Walworth Chapel and thought, you know, she had, I think you kind of alluded to this. She saw William preach and she thought he gave just one of the best sermons she ever heard. And so they kind of got to know each other casually. Nothing happened. I think they went like and had lunch at Mr. Rabbit's house one time, but nothing really, I know the name, (laughs) nothing really happened initially. And so then on Good Friday of 1852, Mr. Rabbit's brought William with him to a church service that Catherine was attending. And afterwards, she wasn't feeling very well. So somebody said, hey, William, will you just take Catherine home? And I love this. Here's what Catherine said about the carriage ride as he took her back home and escorted her. She said, that little journey will never be forgotten by either of us. We struck in at once in such wonderful harmony of view and aim and feeling on various matters that passed rapidly before us that it seemed as though we had intimately known and loved each other for years. And suddenly, after some temporary absence, we'd been brought back together again. Before we reached my home, we both felt as though we had been made for each other. Isn't that cute? So, That's so cute. I love it. So soulmates right there. Now, also, though, but it is interesting because I don't know if you have this quote, but in their correspondence, mm. she wrote she was more egalitarian, So, which right. meant that she really felt a call in her life also to teach and to preach. Mm-hmm. So she says, you know, this is how I feel, and mm-hmm. I feel it so strongly, and I don't you know, I, I need to know how you feel about this. He said, Catherine, if you're anointed, I'll support you. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't forbid you, but I wouldn't sanction, uh, like I wouldn't promote like you either. It. Right. Yeah. Um, because she presented this whole biblical view of why a woman should be allowed yeah. to teach and preach. I mean, she had it biblically outlined. Mm-hmm. And he read it over and he said, you know, I won't discourage you, but I won't promote you. Right. He didn't say I won't... Um, you know, I would. I, he said, I won't keep you yeah, from I it. Yeah, I won't deny you the yeah, right. opportunity. Yeah. And um, so she said, well, you know, that's good enough. Okay, so, yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting because he's going to change his tune a he little is. later. But yeah, early he on, is. they really— Early on. Mm-hmm. And they were, like you were saying, actually, that's a good point because that's something about their relationship. They were both very opinionated and mm-hmm. very strong. They And they would, you know, they managed to work it out. But actually, one of their biographers said that, that both William and Catherine were intense. They were opinionated, strong-minded— and determined, frequently moody, and prone to depression. So you've got quite a mm-hmm. quite a blend here. This is interesting. <laughs> you know what? So. Isn't that so good? Because what we're understanding, again, is God doesn't choose perfect people. Not at all. And he doesn't <laughs> use perfect mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. He uses deeply flawed people. And I think that is such an encouragement. You know, yeah. Today, I was kind of a little extra aware of all my faults. Oh, and, yeah. you know, thinking about Catherine booth, you're just like, yes, I'm yes, okay. Totally. God so can use me, you know? <laughs> but we have those I, those days. Mm-hmm. And it's almost when we're aware of our all our faults, 
that God uses us even more. Yes. And that's one thing. Catherine and, and William, you see this honesty. Of mm, course, yeah. each other was honest with each other. So that... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they kind of had that precedent. They were. They were very honest with each other. Mm-hmm. And Catherine really had to fight against being nagging and bossy and stuff like that. Um, and, and they had their headbutting. And, you know, William had to kind of gently remind her, like, honey... You know, don't be so inflexible. <laughs> but, you know, they grew and they grew in that. And that, like you're saying, like those flaws and weaknesses are things that God gets glory in because he grows us and we see him by his spirit changing us. It's like, that wasn't me. I couldn't have done that without the Lord. And so you see them grow. I was reading too about Catherine that she has the children and that was, I think she's got two children at the time of uh, the story I'm going to tell. Mm. This was not how she saw her, her life going with children. She thought of herself more like, I'm going to stand by his side. I'm going to be yep, very active. Do everything he's doing. And yep. so she had two children, and she was just kind of saying, well, you know, now I'm just restricted to motherhood. And as she was walking down the street, she saw these women just sitting in these groups gossiping. And she sensed that if only they knew the Lord, then it would change the whole demeanor of their conversation and their hope. And she thought, those are the women. I'm going to reach those housewives that are in groups. I I can reach those because I know what it's like to be a mother. I know what it's like to be a housewife. And all of a sudden, she took what she thought was a restriction and made it um, an intercessor Mm. point, a a way of reach, a bridge to these women. I love it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Not just being down on your circumstances, but seeing how the Lord might actually use them. That's such a good point. It's a good reminder to me. Yes. <laughs> write that down and think about it. No. Okay. Anyway, so they ended up, William and Catherine ended up eventually joining the Methodist Connection, which was kind of a more revival-driven offshoot of the Methodist Church. That was more in line with what they were really feeling God calling them to do. And so William becomes a circuit preacher. Uh, they start having kids, like you mentioned, March 1856. That was when they had their first kid, William Bramwell, or Bramwell. That's what he mostly went by. And then the next year, 1857, for whatever reason, some of the other Methodist ministers had gotten kind of jealous of William because he was a very popular preacher. I mean, you know, the Lord's using him as he's a circuit preacher traveling around. But also it was partially because at this point they began to turn towards the impoverished. Yeah. And the church didn't really want, kind of like we, you know, talked about with Emma Moody, the outsiders really didn't want the poor. Yeah. And it's uncomfortable. Ex prostitutes and these other people coming into the church. They were willing to make them a separate church. Yeah. Or yeah. a separate place, but they did not want them in their church. Exactly. And that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately that's what they had to do. Like you mm-hmm. said, they'd have to start their own separate thing. So they actually stuck William into a mission in London at Brig House. They're like, Mm -hmm. you just stay here now instead of circuit preaching, which was really disappointing. But they kind of adapted. They're like, okay, Lord, is this what you want us to do? The good thing about this season was this was when William really started to notice what a gifted communicator and counselor Catherine was Mm -hmm. for these, like you were saying, like women and stuff. He's like, wow, the Lord's really has his hand on you in this area. So he encouraged her to um, lead the women's Bible studies and give lectures. And so their ministry and evangelism starts really expanding. And the Lord begins to prompt Catherine more and more to go towards, like you were saying, the housewives and those. those. And then she'd be walking to church and see like just women on the corner, like a, a, a beggar woman or something like that. And she started feeling like, man, I really need to minister to these women, even if it means I have to skip church today because I'm going to go and talk to them instead. And so, uh, you know, that heart for the downtrodden, so similar to Williams, you know, I think that's one point where they were just so like-minded in. 
and it was preparing them for what would happen in the future. So it's interesting, like you were saying, she was very forthright concerning egalitarianism and female ministry and all that. In fact, she wrote a pamphlet called Female Ministry, which actually later became kind of the basis of the Salvation Army's teaching on that subject. But it's funny because even though she really felt like women could speak and all that stuff, she personally was still a little bit shy about doing it herself. And uh, she just was like, well, maybe this isn't my thing uh, to get up in front of everybody. I don't mind like doing these, you know, discipleship things or whatever, if William wants me to just help him out. But he started to see, this is interesting, this is where he changed, and he started to recognize the call on her life, and he kept urging her to take opportunities to share. So he's urging her to take these opportunities. Finally, she promised the Lord yes. that she would obey if the opportunity arose. She's like, okay, fine, fine, I'll I'll get up and preach if you do something, Lord, but I, I, you know, I yield it to you, whatever. And so there was a Sunday in 1860, while they're still here at this mission in Brighouse, uh, and William is preaching and she's sitting there in the service and all of a sudden she felt the Holy Spirit prompt her to share at that moment. And, and she's gave like, her a, a message yeah. to share. And she totally, but it was funny because initially she totally forgot her vow and she's like, oh, heck no, I'm not getting up there. Yeah. What are you talking about? She's like, I didn't make any promise to the Lord. No, no, no. <laughs> um, but then, and then the enemy, it was interesting because then she's like thinking, and of course this is the enemy does. He came overthinking. in and he said to mm -hmm. her, yep, she's overthinking it. And she says like, oh, and he tells her, oh, you're just going to look like a fool if you get up right now and do that. I mean, he's preaching. This is silly. But at that moment, she realized, and this is what she wrote. She said, oh, Satan made a mistake. He overdid himself for once. It was that word that settled it. And I said, ah, this is just mm -hmm. the point. I've never yet been willing to be a fool for Christ, but now I will be one. And so it, by him saying, you're going to be a fool, she's like, wait a minute, that's what I should be doing. And so she gets up, walks to the front of the church. William's kind of wrapping up his message. I heard she stood next to him. And he's like, what, what are you doing on the platform? Yeah, he came, she this. came up and um, he... And the congregation just kind of looked concerned because, again, remember, she's pretty reserved. And right. so they're kind of like, yes. is something wrong with one of the kids? Right, What's right. going on here? And so she just kind of stands there <laughs> and he's like, yes, dear. And she said, I, I want to say a word. Mm -hmm. And he's like, mm -hmm. OK, my wife has a word to share, everybody. And so he just allows her to come up. And what she shared was so powerful that when she was finished, people were so moved. People were in tears. I mean, it was just like you could hear a pin drop and you hear this kind of wailing and crying in the congregation. And so William jumps up and announces and said, my wife is going to be sharing at the evening service, everybody. Come back again. And so I love this because he was willing to yield to the Spirit. If he sensed a work of the Spirit, it's like, okay, we're going to go with this now. The Lord is obviously moving here. And so this day in 1860 led Catherine into a, a speaking ministry that would bring her all over the British Isles, just like her husband. In fact, a lot of people thought she was a better speaker than he was. And so she became internationally well-known. Um, what I love about her, though, is that she stayed very, uh, very humble and submissive uh, about the whole thing. She just wanted to walk in obedience to the Lord. She wasn't trying to, you know, make a name for herself or do some crazy thing. She just was being obedient. Um, one biographer said uh, she never spoke except under the authority of another. So she's like, I'm not going to start my own church or something. I just, you know, want to be serving the Lord. And she said, if the word of God forbids female ministry, we would ask how it happens that so many of those devoted handmaidens of the Lord felt constrained by the Holy Spirit. The word and the spirit cannot contradict each other. So, I mean, she's like, hey, this is, you know, this is the Lord and I'm just going to walk with this.
What year did it become the Salvation Army, though? Did they turn their mission to oh, Salvation Army? Yeah, that's coming down like almost 20 years from Is this now. a part so, two yeah. then? We're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Are we going to do two parts then? Yes. Oh, good. Because <laughs> there's so much, yeah, like even in the second half. we got to go to part two. Absolutely. Okay, good. So I know I probably should have said that at the then beginning. Then I will rest my case. <laughs> we'll say one other thing that I think is really cool. Like I said, she was a very powerful speaker, and she began to get a lot of notoriety and a lot of people honoring and recognizing her and praising her to high heaven. But she really had genuine humility. It's interesting. There was a group of laymen once that came up after she preached and said, um, we want to build you a church that's uh, bigger than Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle. You, not William. We want to build a church for you to preach in. And she just kind of graciously refused. She's like, that's not what I'm doing this for. Uh, another time, a publisher came and wanted to print all of her messages because he felt they were so important. They needed to be preserved. And again, she just you know, humbly refuse. She's like, I don't need to make a name for myself. That's not what this is about. And so I just love the humility with which she exercised her gifts. I will kind of wrap up here in a second here, but uh, William and Catherine never quite fit into an established church setting. Um, so in 1861, and especially again, like he had the call to be an itinerant preacher and they had kind of just confined him and muzzled him. And so in 1861, the Booths became full-time itinerant evangelists throughout the UK. The Methodist connection, they actually acted kind of ugly on this one. I think they were just, again, there were some petty jealousies and things going on there. Um, but this was a total step of faith. They have four young kids at this point, no stable, stable source of income, but they could see revival was happening. They could see the Lord guiding them. And so uh, this is probably a good spot because we're going to launch out in our next episode with uh, what God was going to do with them as they left the established church and moved on into itinerant ministry. You know, before we, we transition, though, you see also with the Wesleyan connection, because John Wesley, who is a, a very famous evangelist yes. in... England. Mm. He was an outdoor evangelist and he believed in preaching to whoever was um, present. Yeah. So that's part of like this evangelistic drive to yeah. get outside the church walls. Big time. And that's where you see John Wesley's influence, not mm. so much the, the Wesleyan church, what it became, yeah. but going yeah. back to its um, origins, which is amazing. But mm. we've got a part two coming up because Catherine Booth is fascinating. Yes. And to also look at some of the fruit of this ministry that we want to talk about in part two, but we want to thank you for joining us on part one yes. of Women Worth Knowing. And again, if you want to get in touch with us then... Uh, you can contact us. Uh, you can email us, wwk at cccm.com. You can also find us on the women.cccm.com webpage. You can find us on uh, graciouswords.com, which is Cheryl's website. So yeah, that's where you can find us. And we <laughs> want to thank you again for joining us for part one of Women Worth Knowing, Catherine Booth. Woohoo! Bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.